Well, we're not going to wait for the other 35. <laughs> we're going to have to make a start and keep things on schedule, right? It's good to see everyone. Uh, who's local? Granbury, Hood County. Here we go. A few from Glenrose. Abilene over here. Abilene. That's pretty far. Well, I came all the way in from Canada. Anybody beat that? Uh, flew in from uh, Cambridge yesterday, my wife and I, so it is good to be back in Texas, and it is great to be with you. Um, let me start our session and the, the weekend, the weekender, with a word of prayer and commit us and everyone else who's here um, to the Lord and praying that this would be a fruitful, rewarding, beneficial, God-honoring time and uh, profitable for the kingdom. Our Heavenly Father, we do pause in your presence and we come with grateful hearts. And we worship you because you are the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And every good and perfect gift comes from you from above. We thank you for that goodness as it is so wonderfully displayed in your Son, the Lord Jesus, who loved us and gave himself up for us upon Calvary's cross. We thank you for your goodness, which you have poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And we pray that as we have gathered tonight, tomorrow, that you would be in our midst, that you would bless us from on high, that you would instruct our minds and incline our hearts, that as we immerse ourselves in your word, that we would be edified, encouraged, challenged, changed. And may all of this be for our good and for your glory. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we ask it. Amen. So, track three, come on in. Welcome. Uh, track three, here we go. Big order of business. First session, five o'clock. We're going to keep an eye on that clock and make sure we're done sharply by six. You have your kit or handbook or whatever they're calling it. And you will notice the first session, healing broken relationships. And so you should have, I don't know how many pages, is it a dozen, 13, 14 pages of notes. Just relax, breathe easy. We're going to do a 30,000 foot flyover. Some of this stuff and other stuff we will unpack in greater detail. Our, our, our theme, there it is, Healing Broken Relationships, that's the title. The, the real subject we're after is quarreling. So when you think of healing broken relationships and you think in terms of causality, there are lots of causes when it comes to broken relationships in the home, in the church, in the community, whatever the case might be. We are narrowing our focus. I am constructing a fence and we're really just going to concentrate them on broken relationships, healing broken relationships as it relates to this problem called quarreling. And so listen to this just to get us off on the right foot. It can happen in marriages, families, friendships, communities and churches. There is distance where at one time there was closeness. There is suspicion where at one time there was trust. There is animosity where at one time there was compassion. There is accusation where at one time there was encouragement. There's avoidance where at one time there was openness and there is bitterness where at one time there was sweetness. Broken relationships arising from quarreling. And here is how we're going to approach this subject. The notes are divided into three major parts. Three major parts. So you'll see the first one right there, the nature of idolatry, then the nature of wisdom, and then handling conflict. Three parts. What I really want to give you is the second part. The nature of wisdom, it consists of four studies. And so on that occasion where I may find myself in the context of a broken marriage, a disintegrating local church, something to that effect, 
and have an opportunity to come alongside, speak to, attempt to speak truth in love, uh, these are four studies I tend to walk through um, with a very simple goal in view, the transmission and application of biblical truth. So that's really what I want to hone in in part two. You're going to fly over part one because you've done it to death already. The nature of idolatry. If you've been through track one and track two, if you've made it this far without knowing anything about the nature of idolatry, I don't know how you did it. Because it gets just hammered into our brains, doesn't it? The nature of idolatry. The nat- There's Keith walking through. He heard all that with a smirk on his face. The nature of idolatry. So just a brief review So that we're clear on it because we can never lose sight of it because it basically has to be downloaded in the four studies I'm going to give you concerning the nature of wisdom. And then part three is just a very simple methodology. Uh, Once part two is in place, part three, very simple study to work through as individuals ourselves in our own broken relationships And I think a very simple study to work through with others. So that's my goal. I don't think it's too lofty. I don't think it's overly ambitious, but I trust it will be very profitable. I do want to give you uh, one book recommendation. I, um, I, I spent the plane ride yesterday just going over my notes and thinking of one book recommendation for each of my sessions which is difficult, extremely difficult to do. And that is not to say that there are not many other books that we should be reading and that would be profitable. But just one that I want to put on your radar that I think is particularly helpful and relevant for this subject matter. It is by Thomas Brooks, a man named Thomas Brooks. And the title, are you ready for this? It's very complicated. Humility. All right. Because um, come six o'clock, we walk out of here for a break. If uh, there's one word, one takeaway, one point I want just sort of ringing in your ears when it comes to broken relationships, apart from humility, it's a non-starter. There's nowhere to go. And there really is nothing to do. Uh, Until this is in place and until there is the cultivation of poverty of spirit and brokenness before the cross, you can attempt to heal a broken relationship until the proverbial cows come home. And it is all for naught. And so there's a very worthwhile resource, Thomas Brooks, Humility. Uh, There is a subtitle, The Least of All the Saints. Very Pauline, The Least of All the Saints. See, our numbers are growing. Some of you laughed when I said 50. Keith, was it 50? How many were you expecting in this session? Close to 50, so a few... All right, all right. Just scra- whoever you find out there, just send them up. As we'll get to 50. There we go. So everyone see where we're going? You've got your notes. We've got a PowerPoint we'll go through. And um, trust the Lord will we'll bless our time together. And this will prove rewarding. So the nature of idolatry, quickly, quickly, quickly couple of quotes there in the notes. Dick Keyes, we can skip over that one. John Calvin, very popular one. Here is our presupposition when it comes to the nature of idolatry and this problem which plagues the human predicament. The human mind is a perpetual forge of idols. What is it? What is idolatry? Straight out of your notes. When we speak of idolatry, we enter the realm. I have this word underlined. That means it's probably blank in your notes. This is where it gets exciting. When we speak of idolatry, we enter the realm of desires. The realm of desires. Idolatry occurs when we elevate something other than God in our hearts. And this thing ends up mastering us and motivating us. The very nature of idolatry. A couple of pithy statements there from Martin Luther and Tim Keller. One ancient, one modern, just to reinforce our definition. What causes it? Second question. Tim Chester, behind every sin is a lie. The root of all our behavior and emotions is the heart. What it trusts 
and what it treasures. People are given over to sinful desires because they exchange the truth of God for a lie. So here is our basic operating system as fallen creatures. And obviously regeneration rectifies this and renews this in part. But at the root of our existence, this basic principle, operating principle of self-love, the roots. And from that you have the trunk. And so that self-love shaping and influencing our passions Ultimately influencing and shaping our actions and ultimately shaping and influencing our disposition. So the cause of idolatry right down to the root. It is this basic principle of self-love. This is all review, right? Some of you are scribbling like mad, like you've never heard this before. This is all review. Okay. How do we identify idolatry? How do we identify it? Paul Tripp, an idol of the heart is anything that rules me other than God. And so he suggests that when it comes to identifying an idol of the heart, we go on a treasure hunt. And to go on a treasure hunt, you require a treasure map. And the treasure map for identifying idols is very simple. We need to think firstly in terms of principles. Why do I do what I do? What do I want? What do I desire? What do I crave? These are principles that give rise to thoughts, emotions, and actions. Secondly, we need to think in terms of patterns. Who do I want to be like? Why? What do I think will make me truly happy? Surface idols, easy to identify, unless we get to the deeper idols, the bales that are driving the surface idols. We will never change. David Paulison, you've probably read it. If not, I recommend it. Seeing with new eyes gives a list of questions that are intended to help expose deeper idols. What do you worry about the most? What thing or relationship, if lost, would make you question whether to go on living? What do you use to comfort yourself when things get difficult? What are your release valves, etc., etc., etc.? Here are the four primary bales when we work through principles and patterns. Invariably, in the vast majority of cases, the four main bales, number one, power and success. Number two, control and certainty. Number three, approval and esteem. Number four, comfort and ease. That is, those are what make most of us tick and account for our basic principles and patterns. I'll give you a moment to jot those down because I have a feeling I did not put those in the notes. Is my feeling, don't trust your feelings, but I think my feeling's right in this case, is it? Okay, good. All right, sending mixed messages there. What's the remedy for idolatry in a word? Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. How can we break this cycle of idolatry? We flee from idolatry by pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ. And we revel in our identity in Christ. And it is Christ that begins to shape those basic operating principles and establishes those basic patterns of life. And that is how we force out idols. All right? That's review. You've probably, maybe not in those precise words, but the main gist of that you have undoubtedly heard on multiple occasions. I am simply reviewing it because as we come now to this theme of healing broken relationships, I want that in the back of our minds because it does need to get deposited, downloaded into these four studies that we're now going to look at as we unpack the nature of wisdom. Okay? James chapter 3, that's going to be our text. That is where we are going. And James begins a, a fascinating section. It begins in verse 13. It goes as far as verse 11, really, in chapter 4. So if you think of chapter 3, verse 13 right through to chapter 4, verse 11, as a unit, a whole, an entirety. And as we get into it, unpack it, 
we come to grips with the nature of wisdom. And so he asks right there, 13th verse, who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct? Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. His answer is fascinating because of what he does not say. James does not mention the things we normally associate with wisdom. He does not talk about test scores. He does not refer to academic degrees. Why not? Simply put, wisdom is not theoretical. And strictly speaking, wisdom, biblical wisdom, is not intellectual. We equate wisdom with those things. The theoretical and the intellectual, James does not. His argument right there in James 3.13, firstly, is that wisdom is practical. It is manifested in conduct. True wisdom is seen, manifested, revealed, made evident in our behavior, conduct. And he makes it very clear, same verse, that wisdom is moral. It is marked by meekness. And from there, verse 14, again, right through to verse 11 of chapter 4, he unpacks that definition in detail, takes us on quite a journey. Think in terms of, we're going to start with bad, And move to good. And then back to bad. And then again to good. Or think in terms of moving, starting with the negative. He goes at it, comes at it from the negative angle. Then the positive. Back to the negative. Back to the positive. And each of these then represents four studies. And so in a situation, a marriage, whatever the context, siblings, um, colleagues, neighbors, local church and civil war. Uh, and people are sitting down and they're prepared to listen. Uh, this is where I would go. This would be my go-to text. And my aim would be very simple, trying to convey what it really means to be wise. Because if you're not being wise, what are you being? You can't be offended with me. You're being foolish. You are acting like a fool. That is what James is saying. That is the opposite of wisdom. And so we want to be very clear then in explaining, defining the nature of true wisdom. What is God honoring, God glorifying, so that by the Spirit of God, uh, He speaks by means of the Word of God and speaks truth into that situation, into that context, so that all are agreed and on the same playing field as to what it is, the end in view, what we should be after. So you have the four studies then. The first study called A. So rather than one, two, three, four, put A, B, C, D. Because that's what is actually found in the notes. He begins with the negative. He begins with the bad. And he describes what I have called, simply because I've lifted the phrase right out of the text, wisdom from below. And so look with me at James 3, verse 14. But if you have, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder. And every vile practice. So here James in great detail unpacking for us what he describes as wisdom from below. Take very careful note of its origin right there in the 14th verse. But if you have, here's the origin of this wisdom from below. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. So let's actually put that phrase right here at the bottom. Selfish ambition. That's simply self-love. That is simply pride. It is what Jonathan Edwards in your notes. There's just a little citation there. 
what he describes as follows. We love to be uppermost. And this disposition is crossed when we see others above us. We want, I just jotted down a few thoughts here. We want people to think highly of us. We want to be esteemed, admired, and praised. We will use wealth, beauty, success, ability, family, and even spiritual gifts, causes, ministries to achieve our end. When our desire to be uppermost goes unrealized, we react. And bitter jealousy is simply frustrated, selfish ambition. That is all it is. So put bitter jealousy here. It is simply the expression of frustrated, selfish ambition. So if the principle of self-love reigns in me, and I am acting accordingly, and I am driven in a relational context by selfish ambition, when that is not met, when it is crossed, when something comes between me and what it is I desire, what's the response? What's the reaction? How is it displayed? Bitter jealousy. So there is the origin of this wisdom from below. How can we recognize it? It's simple to recognize. It is angry. It is easily agitated and provoked. It is always finding faults with others. It's always venting. It's always criticizing. At times, these things are obvious to all. And at other times, these things occur deep within the soul where they are hidden from view. Second mark, it is moody. It is irritable and resentful. Easily wronged and offended. It bears grudges against those who have what it doesn't. It bears grudges against those who don't think like it, look like it, or act like it. And thirdly, it is touchy. It's like a bone out of joint. It won't allow anyone near it. When confronted, it will deflect attention. It plays the victim. Always wronged. Always misunderstood. Always offended. You're probably thinking of someone right now. Maybe multiple people. And, you know, let's just stay close to home. I see this in my own life more than I care to admit, although I've just admitted it before some strangers. But anyway, there you go. Uh, angry, moody, touchy, bitter jealousy expressed. Bitter jealousy simply crossed, selfish, frustrated, selfish ambition. And so there is its origin. Verse 14. Look with me now at its nature. The 15th verse. And this is, I mean, James just comes right at us here, full steam ahead. He paints a very dark portrait of this kind of wisdom. He says, firstly, it is earthly, meaning it is focused on the temporal and material. Secondly, it is unspiritual. It is focused on the carnal and sensual. And get this one, we often miss it, and some of us might trip over this. It's demonic, says James. This is demonic. It's rooted in demonic forces. Thomas Manton writes, The devil works upon nothing as much as envy and discontent. The way we are most likely to see demonic activity is not in weird sights and sounds. It is simply in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. It is demonic. And then notice thirdly, it's fruit. Verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Right here, disorder. Vile practice. You're building the bridge then. As James builds it for us. If the basic, again, here it is in summation. If the basic operating principle in our hearts is self-love. And we have not dealt with idols of the heart. And we are, have fallen prey to selfish ambition. When selfish ambition is crossed, frustrated, not satisfied, the result always will be bitter jealousy. And bitter jealousy will always express and manifest itself in what? Disorder, vile practice, or what we are calling quarreling. Quarreling. And so when you see someone quarreling, people quarreling, I'm not talking about disagreeing. Disagreements can be very good and necessary and edifying. 
I'm not talking about having a, a heartfelt, passionate discussion because we disagree, we don't see the same and maybe we're coming at things from completely different angles and there's a lack of understanding on my part or on your part. There's a deficiency in our, in our view or our knowledge of things. Disagreement's good and when disagreements are carried out in an open and Christ-like way, they can be extremely constructive. What I'm talking about is quarreling. When people are quarreling, there is only one reason why. You can work backwards. It is disorder. And when people are quarreling, you know now why. It's because there is bitter jealousy at play. And you now know why. It is because there is selfish ambition, frustrated selfish ambition. And you now know why. It is because there is an idol of the heart that has not been rooted out. It is really that simple. And we just simply work backwards. So now if in a mentoring, discipleship, counseling context, you're sitting down with someone and you see how significant this is. Because there may be real issues that need to be discussed. There may be things that need to be put on the table. There may be differences of opinion that need to be talked through. But quarreling makes all of that impossible. And so the first order of business is by God's grace to bring people to recognize what exactly is going on. And why is there quarreling? Why is there bickering? Why is there anger? Why is there this, this, so just this touchiness and the eyes being rolled in the back of the head and the finger pointing and name calling and everything else? Uh, that has to be worked through. And there it is. James just lays it out, take it or leave it in black and white. Uh, if there is quarreling, disorder, work backwards, bitter jealousy, work backwards, selfish ambition, work backwards, you got an idol. There's something going on. All right. There you go. That's the first study. You might not have too many friends at the end of that one as you walk through it, but it's uh, we do. We speak the truth in love, right? And we speak from the posture of poverty of spirit. That's so important. And we're coming alongside and we're working through this in our own lives. And by the grace of God, we become uh, vessels, instruments through which he works in the lives of others. So there you have it. It's uh, origin, it's nature, it's fruit. Oh, let me just add one more slide. Sure, there you are. Um, when this is in play, then opinions and offenses, when you have people quarreling, this is what will be talked about. It's usually an opinion about something, right? Will I throw one out there? Really get us going? Masks or no masks. <laughs> vaccines or no vaccines. I don't care what you think. You shouldn't care what I think. But we all have an opinion. Opinions. All right? Offenses. You walk by me down there and you never said hello. Right? You took the last Coca-Cola and I was had my heart set on that Coca-Cola. Offenses. Well, where this is in play, those become insurmountable mountains. You can't talk about the opinion if this is at play. Have you been on Facebook? And tried stating anything about any of these subjects of late? Good night. What do you realize? Confirmation of this. This is just rampant in the way people talk to one another today. Just rampant. It's all back to this. And so if this, if we're not taking this to heart and working through this, when we, when we have different opinions or when we do offend each other, and we do offend each other, we have bad days and sometimes we're thoughtless and short with one another. Well, these just, it's Everest. And there's no getting over it until this is dealt with. All right, that's the first study. Are you ready for number two? All right, you're going to have to pick up the pace. It's 5.30. Um, here we go then. Study number two. But we now move to the good. We move to the good. So the positive. And now we have wisdom from above. Still in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above. See, I'm not very original. Just lifted it right out of the text. Wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's walk through it. What is the origin of wisdom from above? Its origin is from God. You go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, what's he to do? He's to ask God who gives what? bountifully and without reproach. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, 
from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The nature of this wisdom right there in verse 17. Look at the six marks. It is pure. It reflects God's goodness in its choices, pursuits, actions, words, relationships. It's peaceable. It isn't contentious. It dispels grudges, rivalries, and factions. It promotes peace and longs for unity. Thirdly, it's gentle. It dispels harshness, unkindness, crustiness, abruptness. It's thoughtful. It's generous in its dealings with others. Number four, it's open to reason. It responds to authority and yields to persuasion. It's willing to comply. It responds thoughtfully to questions and arguments. Number five, it is full of mercy and good fruits. It acts generously and compassionately to others, especially those in need. It shows itself in action. It cuts across barriers. And number six, it is impartial and sincere. It banishes all double-mindedness. It's authentic. It hates hypocrisy. Does it sound like anybody? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, interesting study if you want to do it sometime. I think there's a real uh, parallel between that list and the Beatitudes, which shouldn't surprise us because James probably heard the Beatitudes from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself. And he may very well have had the Beatitudes in mind as he now gives this list describing this wisdom from above. So there is its nature. And then look at its fruit. Verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so this wisdom leads to something very different. It springs forth in the fruit of righteous peacefulness. Let's put it here. Righteous peacefulness. Well, what springs forth in righteous peacefulness? This wisdom from above. What is this wisdom from above? It's those six traits we mentioned. It's Christ-like character. And Christ-like character only flows from poverty of spirit. And so do you see how radically different these are wisdom from above wisdom from below wisdom from above wisdom from below wisdom from above and we can work backwards where there is quarreling that is disorder we know there is bitter jealousy we know it's because there is selfish ambition and we know there is an idol where there is righteous righteous peacefulness we know it flows from christ-like character we know it flows from poverty of spirit and that is wisdom from above So from the bad to the good, identifying the problem insofar as quarreling is concerned and now putting forth the remedy, which is the Lord Jesus Christ himself and the only one as we see as we look to him as our motive and not just our motive, but also our model to to emulate this righteous peacefulness that flows from him. And now, James, he takes us back to the negative or the bad. In the first five verses of chapter four, and he actually asks a very pointed question. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this? And it's interesting. He doesn't give 10 reasons. He doesn't put 14 different scenarios before us. There's only one. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have. So you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? And so here are some very simple scenarios just to bring this right down to the 24-7. My spouse and I have been snarling at each other since Monday. Not sure what started it, but I'm really annoyed with her. 
My brother and I haven't spoken since Christmas. There was a disagreement over the handling of our father's estate. It quickly escalated and each of us said some things. My neighbor and I haven't communicated in a while. Not since he yelled at me for allowing my kids in his yard and I yelled back at him for mowing his lawn at 7 o'clock on a Saturday morning. My brother in the Lord and I have managed to steer clear of each other for close to six months. He said he feels like I'm always judging him. Well, there's plenty to judge. He's just overly sensitive. <laughs> and on and on and on it goes. Right? These, these are the scenarios and the situations we're speaking into. And we, that one hit kind of close to home. We, we go from the bad to the good and now back to the bad. And James leaves us in no doubt as to what he's talking about. These quarrels. Uh, he means feuds right there in your notes. He means feuds, disputes, conflicts, contentions, divisions, and arguments. He acknowledges that these happen among you. He answers his question with a question, is it not this? Is this not the cause of quarrels? Right now, your passions are at war within you. The cause of the quarrels don't reside outside, but inside. The Greek term for passions is the origin of our English word hedonism. It refers to the soul's disordered desires. He's taking us right back here to selfish ambition. He's repeating himself, just coming at it from a different angle. He's taking us right back here. Passions. It is what James calls selfish ambition, the desire to be uppermost. Therefore, we are at war with ourselves. And because we are at war with ourselves, we are at war with others. He says in verse 2, you desire and do not have. So you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There are three steps in this war, and these three steps parallel again these points here on the board. So selfish ambition, James says, you desire, you covet. So a marriage, let's suppose, is in disarray. The husband thinks they're quarreling because his wife isn't on top of things in the home. The wife thinks they're quarreling because her husband is distant and non-communicative. There may be issues to address and speak to, but all the while in reality, there's disordered desires that lurk behind the quarrel. Disordered desires. A friendship is in disarray. One friend thinks they're quarreling because the other was impatient. One friend thinks they're quarreling because their children had a falling out. All the while, disordered desires lurk behind the quarrel. Again, we're not talking about disagreements. We're not talking about working through differences of opinion or offenses and seeking to come to an understanding. We're talking about quarreling. A church is in disarray. One faction thinks they're quarreling because some people are too stern. One faction thinks they're quarreling because some people are doctrinally unsound. But all the while, it's actually disordered desires that lurk behind the quarrel. Conflicts arise from cravings. That's the premise. Conflicts arrive from cravings. Selfish ambition. And he takes us again to bitter jealousy. In that statement, you do not have and cannot obtain. So when selfish ambition, disordered desires are frustrated, the result is bitter jealousy. You do not have and cannot obtain. And that leads thirdly to disorder and every vile practice, as James says, so you murder, so you fight and quarrel. Some take the word murder literally. I'm more inclined to think he has the Sermon in the Mount in view. And he is speaking as Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount where he equates anger with murder. When other people fail to affirm whatever we've attached our desire to be uppermost to, our idols demand that they be punished. We'll find ways to punish people in an attempt to force them to surrender to our desires. We will use our expressions. We smirk and snarl. We huff and puff. We roll our eyes. We shake our heads. We pout. We glare. If looks could kill, they would. We use our actions. At times we use intimidation. We seek to get our way through angry outbursts. You might know someone like that. You might struggle with that yourself as a manipulative technique to get what you want 
employing anger, intimidation. At other times, we use isolation, equally as bad. We seek to get our way by withdrawing. Coldness and aloofness become our weaponry. And at times, we use our words. The tongue is a fire, James says, James 3, verse 6. The tongue is a fire set on fire by hell. Our words become harsh and dismissive, careless and thoughtless, malicious and slanderous, sarcastic and negative. We murmur and complain. We criticize and bicker. We use our words to cut and bite. We use these three things, expressions, actions, words, to communicate a very simple message. I wish you were dead. You murder. It is disorder and every vile practice arising from bitter jealousy, which arises from what? Disordered desires when selfish ambition rules. So he's taken us again by the hand, gently, not so gently, again into the realm of the, the negative. And now he brings us and finishes with the positive. And this moves us on to, I think maybe it's about page 10, is it? Is it called D? Uh, I skipped over something there, didn't I? Do you want that? Uh, yeah, I think you should get, we should get this because James is emphasizing just how serious this is. Yes, we're at war with ourselves, we're at war with others, but sometimes what we, what we neglect to recognize is we're actually, when we're living like this, we are at war with God. And he uses uh, two words that uh, maybe perhaps we wish he hadn't, but there they are. And um, they're right there in verse 5, is it? No, back into verse 4. You adulterous people. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So you do not have because you do not ask. You ask, this is just in your notes, and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so selfish ambition will drive us from prayer. When we do pray, our motives will be severely skewed. We don't pray the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name. We simply view God as a means to an end. And we view prayer as a means to get what we want. And then on to the next page in my notes anyway. I think the paragraph begins, according to James, if I find in myself this condition, I need to realize two things. You see where I am? Number one, I become an adulterer. I've told God that I'm... So if, if this... And so in a counseling context, sometimes we have to say hard things. We, we speak the truth in love. But if this is the reality we're dealing with in a complete relational breakdown where this is just so prevalent and you're working backwards and there is obstinacy, at times people need to hear this. They need to be confronted with this. Um, you, you're, you're basically, if you're acting like this, you've told God you're not coming home tonight. You're an adulterer. You're basically saying, I'm going to spend the night in someone else's bed. The pursuit of selfish ambition is spiritual whoredom. That's James' point. Spiritual whoredom. Because it is a denial of God's all-sufficiency. Secondly, according to James, if I find myself in this condition, I become an enemy. These pleasures are opposed to God who yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Whether the term is spirit, small s, spirit, capital S, the point is the same, namely... God desires conformity to his will. We belong to him. When we succumb to our passions, we act like God's enemies. We are at war with God. That is James' point. We come now, we're ready to end on the positive note. It takes us into verses 6 through 10. I call this more grace and listen closely to what James has for us here. But, but... So he's going from the bad to the good, but he gives more grace. Here we go. Good news. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. James leaves us in no doubt 
as to the cause of quarreling disorder. And he leaves us in no doubt as to the remedy. Let me unpack it for you in basically five statements. Here's the starting point. I desire. What do I desire? I desire to be uppermost, exalted, what James calls selfish ambition. That is the starting point. I desire. And what we're we're seeking by God's help to bring people to this realization. I desire something. There is something going on here that I'm after. And it is rooted in idolatry, selfish ambition. Therefore, I demand. I attach my selfish ambition to things. It might be material things, such as ability, beauty, or family. It might be spiritual things, such as gifts and ministries. It might be opinions on everything from politics to vaccinations. It might be philosophies on things from healthy living to child rearing. I turn these things into idols and attach my self-worth, self-importance to these things. And friend, brother, sister, you must affirm me in these things. And if you don't affirm me in these things, what's been crossed? Selfish ambition. Someone's got to pay. I desire, I demand, and when my demands are not met, I dislike. I dislike. You refuse to bow down to my idols. Well, Houston, we've got a problem. There's a big problem here. My supposed love for you will quickly morph into disdain and contempt, bitter jealousy. And from there, what happens? I destroy For failing to affirm that to which I've attached my desire to be uppermost. My idols demand that you be punished. They demand that you be punished. My goal is to force you to surrender to my idols. And I will use expressions, actions, and words to communicate again. We went down this road a very simple message. I wish you were dead. And what James is saying is this. Here's what really must happen. I must die. There you go. I must die. And that is what he is saying here in our section. He gives more grace. Verse 6, therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now skip down to verse 10. Humble yourselves. That's a literary device. That's called an inclusion. And so Paul, James, John, even the Lord Jesus in speaking will often use this. A little phrase to open a thought and close the thought. And there James is using it here, his emphasis on humility. I must die. Galatians 2.20, right? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh. Yeah, I still live it in the flesh. And it's, uh, well, the Lord knows nothing good dwells in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up. For me. And this is what he is now describing in verses 6 through 10. It involves submission to God. Verse 7. Submitting to God means joyfully surrendering to his will. It's being able to say, Psalm 40, verse 8, I desire to do your will, O my God. If a husband is a raging tyrant in the home, then he is not joyfully surrendering to God. It is that obvious. If a wife is a nitpicking irritant in the home, then she is not joyfully surrendering to God. If a woman is a gossiping nuisance in the church, then she is not joyfully surrendering to God. If a man is a raging bull in the church, then he is not joyfully surrendering to God. It's not rocket science. It is two plus two equals four. It is really that simple. Uh, Submission to God. James adds resistance to Satan. Verse seven. Don't lift it out of context. If we do, we'll end up with all sorts of crazy ideas. The command is nestled between two other commands. The first, submit to God, and then resist Satan, draw near to God. So it's sandwiched between those two, right? Submission to God, nearness to God, in between resisting the devil. I think it's what Paul has in view in Ephesians 4.27, give no opportunity to the devil. The devil targets this, and he has a field day with it. He targets selfish ambition. Devil targets wounded pride. The devil targets discontentment. The devil targets envy and malice. The devil targets bitterness. 
and he has a field day with these things. I think this is much of what spiritual warfare is, simply. It is submission to God and it is nearness to God whereby we resist the devil's temptations and we do so by dying to self. I think the greatest step in spiritual warfare is simply this. It is dying to self. It is Galatians 2.20 because as we die to self, guess what? The devil's got nothing to work with and he has nothing to aim at. We make ourselves vulnerable to temptation and the devil when this reigns and when he can ply his trade, taking full aim at these idols of the heart. Thirdly, nearness to God. How are we doing for time? Not too bad. It's right there in verse 8. Nearness to God isn't a call to seek some sort of ecstatic spiritual experience. It's a call to devote ourselves to the means he has appointed. It's a call to rid ourselves of anything that stifles our enjoyment of those means. First Peter 2, 2. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And like newborn babes, infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. Cleansed hands. Verse 8, I'll leave you with the notes. They're self-explanatory. Purified hearts, also there in verse 8. Straightforward, isn't it? I don't need to add anything to these. I think they speak for themselves. Genuine repentance, verse 9. Genuine to differentiate it from disingenuous. What's our proper posture when we come face to face with our sin? Every time we sin, we add our spittle to that of the scoffers who spat upon Christ. The only thing we bring to salvation is our sins to be forgiven. I can only laugh when I have shed tears for my sin. Genuine repentance. There's the four. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Poverty of spirit. And he will exalt you. Did you get all of that? Yeah? If you missed anything, find a friend, someone who takes amazing notes, right? And uh, see if they will uh, exercise some kindness and help you with the blacks. Okay, then in just five minutes, just a very simple approach. You know, by God's grace, you, you're working with a couple. And, and maybe there are some, some things that, um, you know, there's some habits there and uh, just some thought patterns that need to be addressed. Something was said, something was done, and um, it needs to be put on the table. That, that's fine. We, we, we don't dismiss that. We acknowledge it. But what we are after just here is the quarreling. Why the quarreling? The bickering and everything else. The snide remarks, the attacks, the angry outbursts and everything else. If we're sat down with that, that couple, oh, by God's grace, I mean, praise God, if we are able to walk through Scripture and just take them, this, them on this journey into the pit, and then give them some hope and the back down into the pit and then lift them up again. More grace and what it means to humble ourselves before the cross of Christ and to cultivate. This is our goal. Righteous peacefulness flowing from Christ-like character, which can only exist when there is poverty of spirit, humbling ourselves before God. So they're getting it. The penny's dropping. They see it. They're a little convicted. Yeah, 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 I see that. And we've identified some of this of what's going on. Uh, where do we go from there? And what are just some you know, practical takeaways? Here are some scriptures to look at, some things to work through, some questions to ask. So there can be a discussion and um, there can be real reconciliation and healing in that relationship. So just, just briefly, you know, we acknowledge... That yes, there are differences that need to be talked about. There are deficiencies. There are disagreements. That is fine. We're really trying to deal with this issue when it comes to quarreling, though. Depravity, selfish ambition. And so how do we resolve it? Yes, we need to be aware of people's different um, coping mechanisms when it comes to quarreling. Some people are uh, like the tortoise. They just avoid at all costs. Just avoid, avoid, avoid. Sometimes we equate that with godliness. It's not necessarily godliness. It might just be fear. Right, But some of us just impulsively react that way. Uh, some are, uh, well, win at all costs. There's no such thing as a friendly game. You don't play for fun. Right? You play to win, and you argue to win, and you quarrel to win. And uh, yeah, no one in this room like that though, right? But we may know some people like that. Submission, just roll over like a teddy bear. Just submission, submission, submission in a negative sense. Uh, just a doormat. 
to be walked all over. Compromise. Always compromise, compromise to reach some sort of agreement. Resolution. I think this is what we really want to aspire to, is resolution. And we do so when we recognize that conflict, quarreling, it's an opportunity to reflect our new life in Christ. Really, where the rubber meets the road. And so uh, in terms of a strategy, homework, things to work through, I would um, speak with this couple, just sticking with that example. Look, we need to understand now what we are called to as, as believers. We're called firstly to overlook offenses. Good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. And so I might ask a husband, a wife, uh, what will that look like in this situation? Now, we're not talking about things that are of serious nature. We're talking about offenses and um, we offenses, it's part of life as we... As we go through life and relate in close quarters with one another, um, but what is it that perhaps we should be willing to um, overlook, or at least see differently? I would take them to First Peter four eight, the call to cover offenses. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. It's again the very simple question. Is this a context? Is this a situation? What it is that is at the focus of the quarrel? Is this something that perhaps we should be covering up in love? Uh, is this something that we should be willing to overlook? Thirdly, we're called to assume the best when it comes to others' motives. That's a good one because we struggle with that because we think we're omniscient and we know exactly what everyone else is thinking always at every moment right and we don't we're clueless Uh, love bears all things believes all things hopes all things and endures all things so this is what we're arguing about this is what we're bickering about well go away think about this text uh, and come at it through fresh eyes and just write down on a piece of paper what would it look like to assume the best when it comes to your wife's motives what would it look like in this situation to assume the best to hope all things and believe all things when it comes to your husband's motives. How have I read this situation? But I mean, I should think about what's the best possible uh, spin I can put on this situation. Fourthly, guard our words. We're called to guard them. Let your speech always be gracious. Season with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Have your words been seasoned with salt? Or have your words been acidic? Have your words just been like launching and lobbing grenades? Well, what needs to change in your language? Not just your language, your posture and your attitude. And um, do, do you even have any sense of how angry you come across? A lot of time angry people aren't aware. Oh, isn't everybody like that? I'm not angry. I'm good. It's all good. And they're just completely oblivious. Well, have you actually looked at yourself in the mirror sometimes when you're talking and addressing people? And have you, have you just sort of thought about how you're coming across and whether or not your language is actually seasoned with salt? Exemplify kindness. What will it look like in this situation to be kind to one another? Have you been tender-hearted? Why not? What will that look like moving forward relationally in words and actions and attitudes? Cultivate humility. We've been down that road. But here it gets very specific and helpful. Let each of you look not only to his own interests. What is in the best interest of the other person? What is it they are trying to communicate or express? Uh, Trying to come at it from their angle and exercise some humility and answer those important questions. Oh, control anger. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I remember sitting across the table from a man once and uh, anger issues and I, uh, with fear and trembling, knees knocking, raised anger issues. Well, Christ was angry. He went into the temple. This was the fellow's response and cast out the money lenders. And my response, you're not Christ. <laughs> All right. Can we have a discussion here? And, uh, well, that didn't go so well. I, maybe I didn't handle that right. Maybe I got a little angry. I don't know. But um, it, there's, there's some truth in there, though, right? 
Because you hear people use that one sometimes to justify, you're not Christ. A long way from it. Uh, Avoid criticism. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Have you been critical in this situation? Uh, Overly critical. How so? And what would it mean to speak positively? Desire peace. Do you want peace? Some people don't. You've got a real problem if you get to this point where the person doesn't want peace. They're just a combative individual. Or to handle those people very differently, that's a different text, that's another different session, another time. But um, our goal, our aspiration, there it is. Paul makes it very clear. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual building up. So in this particular situation as a church, as a couple, as a family, what would make for peace here? What would it take to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace right now in this situation? Are you even prepared to have that discussion and conversation? Or are you on train tracks going one way and just bowling over everything in front of you? That's an important one. Desire peace and pursue forgiveness. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. I blew through those and I had some chicken scrawl here. A few things to add, but um, time got away from us. But, but, I hope I've given you enough some food for thought, some paradigm for your thinking, and most importantly, an an invaluable text. There is no better text than that one. Master that text and, and, you know, basically that those ideas, make it your own, personalize it, internalize it. I don't think you can do much better than that because it speaks directly to this issue and we can stand upon the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture and confidently then speak truth into people's lives praying by God's Spirit to bring about healing and reconciliation. All right?